Good morning, church. Would you open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 19? For the choir director, a psalm of David. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. The voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. <clears throat> the law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your slave is warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also, keep back your slave from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. You may be seated. Father, you are good and perfect in all your ways. And nothing happens that does not pass through your hand. Father, give us ears to hear this morning. Father, give me clarity of speech. Help me to convey the message that you have been placed on my heart. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, I want to thank the elders for this opportunity to, to bring the message this morning. I consider it a great honor and a privilege. And as I look out here this morning, it's thankful, I'm thankful to see everybody. I come from a, a church where if the pastor is gone, normally the congregation sees it. Okay, I can miss church today. But, it, but it's good to see you all. Uh, as I was considering my message this morning, I knew what I wanted to preach on. It was something that I had been considering for several years, something since I was in seminary. While I was in seminary, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about how we came to faith and how we ended up in seminary. Let me pause for just a minute. I just want to ask the Haddocks real quick. Was there a bet to see how far I'd make it before I start getting verklempt? <laughs> Normally when I get up and speak, it's only a matter of time before I get verklempt, so bear with me. But 
I told him about my dysfunctional upbringing, about my dysfunctional marriage, my dysfunction as a father, and a complete rebellion to God. But God, when I was 40, after almost losing my wife and family, God radically saved me. Now, any salvation is radical when you think about the dead coming to life. But the change the Lord brought about me was radical. And at the time, my friend and I were talking, I had been a believer for five years and in seminary for two of those years. And he asked me what I thought was missing or lacking from the church. And this is a very loaded and broad question, but as most seminary students, as most seminary, as most seminary students do, we're solving all the problems of the church. <laughs> but as I thought about it for a minute, I told him, I think there are two main things that are lacking. There are an appreciation, an appreciation for the understanding of the majesty of God and holding to a sufficiency of Scripture. As I said, I had been in seminary for two years when I had this conversation, and my focus was on biblical counseling. It's from that perspective that I had made and hold my position that the things lacking in the church are an appreciation for the majesty of God and for the sufficiency of Scripture and what I'll be centering my message on this morning. In the psalm we just read, we see a good example of the majesty of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. And what I hope to do today is bring it all together to help us deepen our worship. Now, we read Psalm 19, and that's going to be kind of the basis of my message, but I'm going to be bringing in a couple other passages as well. And this isn't going to be your typical exegetical, exegetical message, excuse my French, uh, but I'm going to be kind of doing, uh, bringing in a, a few texts to, to bring in my uh, main points. In doing so, I have several questions I want you to consider today. I want you to talk about them during fellowship. I want you to take them home and discuss them during family worship. I am convinced these questions will drive you to Jesus. Because if we can begin to comprehend the majesty of God and comprehend our sinfulness in light of majestic God, we can do nothing but gain a deeper appreciation for what Christ has accomplished for us on the cross and drive us to worship even more. And I'll elaborate on that in just a minute. But before I go any further, I want to ask, lost person, do you know what Jesus has, has done, what the work that he has accomplished for us on our behalf? Let me tell you, there's a debt you owe to God for the sin in your life, a debt that cannot be paid by being a good person, or by any good works. Jesus lived the life you could not live, 
and pay the debt you cannot pay through his crucifixion on the cross. He did this in order that you may, be in, may spend eternity worshiping and praising him. And this is received by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in Christ alone, trusting that the work he has done for you. I plead that you will do that today. So the question, what is majesty? Dictionary.com defines majesty as supreme greatness or authority, sovereignty. Britannica.com says majesty is awe-inspiring greatness. Another definition, I don't remember where it came from, says greatness of appearance, the quality or state of person or thing which inspires awe or reverence in the beholder, applied with peculiar propriety to God and his works. So the first question I would like for you to consider is this. What is the majesty of God, or how would you describe the majesty of God? King David, a man after God's own heart, in Psalm 145, praised God in this way. Starting in verse 1, he says, I will exalt you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall laud your works to another, and shall, decla- and shall declare your mighty deeds. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on the words of your wondrous deeds, I will muse. In verse 3, the psalmist says, And his greatness is unsearchable. Nothing has a more negative effect on character than having a low view of God. We should strive to have just and high views of his greatness. Human virtue and greatness have their limits, but the greatness of God is unsearchable and inexpressible. Unless we have a high view of God, our thoughts of sin will be shallow, our sense of commitment will be weakened, and our praise and worship will be boring. Verse 5 tells us how we develop these high views of God. It says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the words of your wondrous deeds, I will muse. The New American Standard 95 reads, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. So my translation will read something like this, combining both of these passages. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the, wonders, and on the words of your wondrous deeds, I will meditate. How we develop these high views is by meditating on the majesty of God and what he has done. R.C. Sproul put it this way. He says, what we're talking about here is the godness of God. It's an awkward expression. This is the most perfect being, God. 
There's a sense in which he has revealed himself, and we know who he is. We know who he is in the full complex of his attributes. And I want to pause right there for a minute. And when I, when I talk about his attributes, do we know what his attributes are? His attributes describe who he is, who God is. And so I, w- I would challenge you to study those, to learn who God is, because it helps us understand his majesty. We know who he is in the full complex of his attributes, in his works, and in his decrees. But there's a sense in which God is a mystery. The Bible uses a host of ways to get at it. Sometimes we even say, God is awesome. In the old days, they would say, God is terrible. It's not how we use that word today, but the majesty of God is one of the ways we express the godness of God. There's a sense which God's majesty is indescribable. But the psalmist tells us we meditate on this. R.C. Sproul goes on, Do you not know that God dwells in light inaccessible? We weak and ignorant creatures... We want to probe and understand the incomprehensible majesty of the unfathomable light of the wonder of God. We approach. We prepare ourselves to approach. What wonder then that his majesty overpowers us and shatters us. What I think R.C. Sproul was talking about here is the idea of approaching the scriptures in humility humbling ourselves before God, seeking to know him more and to understand what he has done for us. When we approach God in this way, the majesty of God can do nothing but crush us under the weight of our sin and lead us to repentance and worship. How do we do this? When we begin to comprehend the majesty of God and at the same time consider our sinfulness, this should drive us to Jesus and worship him for what he has accomplished. Then we gain a greater understanding of the majesty of God. We hate our sin more, gain a greater appreciation for what Jesus accomplished for us, and worship him with a greater love. And this cycle continues and continues When was the last time you thought about the majesty of God in this way? When was the last time you really considered the sinfulness of sin? The second question I have for you, what hinders us from comprehending the majesty of God? Here I have three ideas. First, living in a democratic republic, kind of. For now, we live in a society that allows us freedom to choose. We can elect our leaders, but the idea is that we live in a democracy where we have the ability to vote on various leaders and laws, where we have an opinion and have some influence. 
unlike living in an absolute monarchy where we don't have the freedom to speak out or against something. In 1 Kings 2, verses 36 through 46, we read of the execution of Shimei. In this passage, King Solomon tells Shimei to build yourself a house in Jerusalem and live there. And do not go out from there to any place. Later in the passage, it is reported to King Solomon that Shimei had left Jerusalem to go find his two slaves and returned back. When King Solomon had heard about this, he called for Shimei and executed him for not obeying his word. When I read of passages like this and others, it reminds me of the majesty of God and how serious his word is to be taken. The second idea is rugged individualism. We live in an era of the self-made man, people who have pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and have made something of themselves, people who don't need anyone telling them what or how to do something. How many times have we heard the expression, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do? That is a lie straight out of the garden. I often talk of the first sin as a sin of autonomy and something we still struggle with today. The idea that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want. Sitting on our little thrones, doing what we please, as if we are our own gods. Little g. But let me pause for a minute. You ever wonder why most evangelism takes place centered around the lower income? When I was at a previous church during our evangelism training, we would always go to Western Heights to knock on doors. We didn't go to where the affluent were, always to Western Heights. Just a thought, the wealthy need to hear the gospel too. And my final idea is one that I have come to hold very strongly and I'm convinced by Scripture that it's one of the greatest disservices, trying to be nice here, to the church, considering most pastors refer their members out for counseling. Nothing like sending your sheep to the wolves and wondering why we have the problems we do, but I digress. And this next hindrance is secular psychology, more specifically counseling, secular counseling. What is secular counseling or secular psychology? Paige Harbeck explains it this way, and I really want you to hear what is being said here. Secular psychology argues that a personal God does not exist and that we are just physical, smart animals made millions of years ago through natural causes and processes Secular psychologists believe there is only the material world. Behaviorism is a type of psychology concerned with explaining everything through material causes. Behaviorists believe all human thought and personality are just results of physical interactions of the brain. Modern-day secular psychology says that humans are mostly good, physical beings who are mentally healthy when focused upon achieving self-actualization and are able to make their own choices. Professor Wilhelm Wundt, a German psychologist and one of the fathers of modern psychology at the University of Leipzig in Germany, 
he was around during the late 1800s, early 1900s, proclaimed that man's soul, if indeed he had one, was irrelevant, as man could only be understood in terms of physical, observable phenomena. A search for the spiritual nature of man, he reasoned, was a waste of time as there was no psyche. The Greek word for psyche is soul or spirit. Thus, psychology became the study of the spirit which denied the spirit. The subject of psychology thereafter became prevalent in universities. Sigmund Freud, early 1900s, another one of the fathers of modern psychology, reinforced this modern concept of man, arguing that all impulses stemmed from his repressed and uncontrollable sexual desires. These impulses were then analyzed as primitive and instinctive, not that different from those from which drive an animal. Now, I could go on, but I hope you see how I come to the conclusion that secular psychology has done the church a great disservice. Again, especially considering church leaders have been referring their members out for counseling for years. My third question, how do we overcome these hindrances? One, we realize we serve a holy and just God. One who will give an account to one day for how we live our lives. Did we live in rebellion to him thinking we can do what we want? Or did we live a life of obedience, trusting him, believing that what he says is true? Two, realize that we are not, we are not as rugged and self-made as we think we are. It is only by the grace of God we can do anything whether it is his common grace given to all people or his special grace. And three, realize how pervasive secular psychology or secular counseling is and the influence that it has had on you and repent. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 5, verses 5 through 9, For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are eagerly awaiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do not believe the lie that secular psychology is pushing on you. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Again, have nothing to do with worldly philosophy. Have nothing to do with secular psychology. It is this last reason that I want to focus on, and for the rest of my time, I want to talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Let's look at Psalm 19 again. 
verses 7 through 11. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, even more than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by, their, by them your slave is warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. This passage of Scripture makes numerous statements that nobody would consider making about any ideas of man. Statements that are made about the Bible that put it in a class by itself and shows its sufficiency and superiority to any of man's theories. Let's look at these claims. In verse 7, it says, It is perfect, meaning whole, complete, sufficient, lacking nothing, and therefore is able to restore, transform, renew the soul, the inner man, the real self. It says it's a sure, it's a trustworthy, reliable, dependable witness, and therefore able to make wise the simple. Who are the simple? People who lack a proper understanding of life, of God, of themselves, and of others. Verse 8, we see it contains precepts, principles, guidelines, rules for character and conduct that are right, they are correct in accord with what is good and just, appropriate and fitting, and therefore able to cause the heart, the totality of man's inner non-physical self to rejoice, to experience a sense of well-being, serenity, tranquility, or peace. It is authoritative, It gives mandates and directives that are always correct and pure. It is clear, untainted with evil or error, and therefore able to bring light into man's chaos and confusion, to replace man's ignorance and lack of understanding with clear direction, perspective, and insight. In verse 9, it says it's clean. It is uncontaminated, free from impurity and defilement, and enduring. It's permanent, unchanging, relevant, up-to-date, never outdated, never in need of alteration, and therefore able to produce the fear of the Lord, a wholesome and incredible, practical, and positive reverence for God. It provides insight about God man, life, and everything needed for living in godliness that are altogether true, they correspond to and accurately reflect reflect reality. They tell it like it really is, and righteous. They reflect that which is right, good, and holy, 
that which is truly just and fair, and therefore leading to understanding and practice what is truly real and right. Verse 10, it's, it's more, desirable, more desirable than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. It is able to produce in us a kind of prosperity that is more valuable than all the material riches of the world. And being sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. It is able to remove the sourness and bitterness caused by sin and to produce in us a sweetness of life that is greater than anything the world can provide. Are you with me? Considering all of the previous qualities we see that the word is able to infallibly warn and protect us from, the many dangers and disasters that, it, that can result from ignorance of what is truly right, the word is also capable of preserving us from temptation, sin, error, false teaching, and every other threat to our inner man, our thoughts, emotions, affections, and attitudes. I think Psalm 19, in these verses we just looked at, is enough for us to see that God's word is sufficient. But in God's providence, he has given us two other passages to look at. And the first one, I think, is one that we're all familiar with, and that's in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. But I want us to look at this passage in the context, in its context, starting in verse 1. So 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness but having denied its power, keep away from such men as these. For among them are those who enter in households and take captive weak women weighed down with sins, being led, led on by various desires, always learning and never able to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jabris opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, disqualified in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as there was also. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live Godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will, will proceed from bad to worse, 
deceiving and being deceived. But you, continuing these things, you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which, you are, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And the passage we're all familiar with. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the first 13 verses of this passage, Paul describes problems common to all people. People need help either because they are personally experiencing and manifesting sinful attitudes, desires, and behaviors, or they're personally suffering from the influence of someone who is manifesting the patterns described in this passage. And in, verse, in verses 15 through 17, Paul gives us the answer as to how we can help people who are, who are experiencing the difficulties in this sin-cursed world. And it, and it helps us to understand why Scripture is sufficient. In verse 15, it says, It is sacred. It's set apart from any other writing. No other writing can compare to what is written in Scripture. It is able. The Bible is capable of transforming lives. It is inspired, literally God-breathed, as, as if God is speaking to us today. It is profitable. Scripture is profitable for our relationships with one another, for our marriages and families, for guidance and for direction, for comfort and challenge, for preventing and resolving problems. It is profitable for all of life. Scripture is also for reproof. The Holy Spirit uses it to convict us of sin and show us when we are wrong in our thinking. When we are wrong in our motives, desires, and attitudes, he uses it to bring us under conviction and motivates us to repent. God's word is also useful for correction. The Holy Spirit not only shows us what we need to change, but also tells us how to change. In verse 17, we see that Scripture can thor, 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 <laughs> y'all got it, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, thoroughly, that, yes, thoroughly equip the man of God for every good work. The Holy Spirit equips the people of God to do everything he wants them to do in the type of world described in, in the first 13 verses. We have everything we need to understand people and their problems and to help them resolve those problems. John Murray says of 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, there's no situation in which we, as men of God, are placed, no demand that arises for which Scripture, as the deposit of the manifold wisdom of God, is not adequate and sufficient. Here, here at Christ the King, I don't think we have a problem 
with the sufficient understanding or, or believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. But this is something that the world is trying to take away from us. And I hope as, as we go through this message that it is encouraging us that we do have everything we need. And that, that in this next passage, uh, and the last one I want us to look at here, is 2 Peter 1.3. Uh, Second Peter 1, verses 3 through 7. And, and it says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the full knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has given to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in this world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. I want to point out what Peter says in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. What does everything mean? Everything. It's just like, what does all mean? It means all. So how do we tap into these resources? They become ours through the true knowledge of God because of his precious and magnificent promises. In other words, everything we need for life, God, for life and godliness is found in our majestic God and his sufficient word. In light of these passages that we briefly touched on, and there's so much more, I, I just barely even scratched the surface on these, but I want to ask this question. Could God have stated more clearly, more clearly the sufficiency of, of our resources in Christ and his word. What more could he have said to get the message through to us that we don't need any other resources to help us understand people and their problems? And not only that, he has equipped us to help people with their problems. And what we're really talking about here is discipleship. And the Apostle Paul says in Romans 15, 14, the ESV, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That's discipleship. And in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2, Wendell, thank you for that text this morning. It says, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you look into yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 
verses 1 through 4. No. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. These passages are telling us that we have everything we need, that we are equipped, and we need to be encouraging one another. We need to be discipling. We need to be involved in each other's lives. I've been talking a lot about secular psychology and counseling. And I want to address something here that can be very controversial, but I feel it needs to be addressed. When I talk about counseling, there are three types of counselors. The first is the secular counselor. This counselor adheres to all the principles of secular psychology. The one that denies God and says that man does not have a soul. This type of counseling, this type of counselor should be avoided at all costs. The second is the Christian counselor. Under this category, there are two types. The first is the Christian in name only but he adheres to all the principles of secular psychology. And the second is what is called the integrationist. What is an integrationist? I'm glad you asked. Simply put, an integrationist is one who brings the best, if there is any, the best of secular psychology and mixes it with Scripture. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? And Belial is the Hebrew word for, for devil. What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? When I read these passages, it makes it clear that you cannot mix secular psychology with the Bible and come up with anything trustworthy as far as fixing the problems of a sin-cursed world. The third type of counselor is a biblical counselor. A biblical counselor is one who believes in the inspired scriptures alone reveal God's understanding of what is wrong with us, explains who we're supposed to be, and shows how God intends us through the, chain, through the work of Jesus Christ and the power of his Holy Spirit. Again, this is discipleship. If we were doing what we should be doing, encouraging our brothers and sisters in the word, bearing burdens, speaking truth, we should not need counseling. At this point, asking, what now? What am I supposed to do? Well, I want to encourage you with five things. The first, I want, I want you to examine yourself to see where, you've been become, where you have become psychologized, where you have become influenced by worldly thoughts and repent. Let me give you a couple examples of how easily we may be influenced. The first comes from the book Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. 
In the introduction, she says that what she is writing is not authoritative. But she goes on to say that God is speaking to her. So I ask the question, when God speaks, is he, a not, is he not authoritative? The second pertains to the book, The Five Love Languages, by Gary Thomas. Or no, by Gary Chapman. This, this book talks about speaking love languages in our relationships. But when reading this book with discernment and a critical eye, ear, what this book is teaching is that if my spouse speaks my love language, then if I speak my wife's love language, then she will speak mine. It's not a bad principle, but when the flesh gets involved, it becomes manipulation. I, re I recently watched the movie Nefarious. It's based, upon, it's based upon a true story. And for a full disclaimer, I haven't researched to see if it was a true story. But it's of a, of a prisoner on death row who has to be examined concerning his fitness to be executed. The movie is considered by some as a modern-day screw tape letters because the conversation between the psychiatrist and the inmate who says, he's a de who, who says he's a demon tells of the tactic the devil uses to deceive. He goes on to say some of the main ways, the main ways he says is by the desensitization of people through books, music, TV shows, and movies. And I would say, even take it a step further and say through secular counseling. So, I encourage you again to examine yourself to make sure you have not been psychologized. Second thing I encourage you is to reclaim biblical terminology. Words matter. This is one of the areas we can easily become psychologized. For example, when was the last time you said you were sad? Or did you say you're depressed? We have turned sadness into depression. And don't get me wrong, I do believe there are true diagnoses of depression, but I think it's overdiagnosed. Or what about saying someone has had an affair? No, they haven't. They committed adultery. Let's not glamorize sin. And finally, this one is a big one, saying someone is an alcoholic. No, they're drunkards. I say this one is big because the mental health community has turned alcoholism into a disease, something a person cannot help. And when you turn sin into sickness, we have no need for a savior. And let's not talk about the sin of homosexuality. But I will. <laughs> Did you know in 1950, when the first DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders, came out, and it's a manual psychologists, psychiatrists, and doctors use to determine mental illness, when it came out, 
homosexuality was listed in the same category as bestiality and pedophilia. In the most recent update, homosexuality is not listed. Just something to think about. The next thing I would encourage you is don't be afraid to counsel or disciple someone. Remember Paul's words in Romans 15, 14, that you are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct. This is not a job for the professional or for your elders. This is a job for everyone. I'm going to save the full message of these next two points for another day. But if we're going to trust in the sufficiency of Scripture, I think these should, these should be touched on as a means of application. And that is, number four, is become a peacemaker and not a peacekeeper. In Matthew 5, we're called to be peacemakers. This can be tough because not too many of us like to con be confrontational. But there's a way to do it, and Scripture has, has given us the instructions on how to do it. And don't be a peacekeeper, sweeping things under the rug, thinking a problem will go away, because I have a secret. It may seem to go away for a little while, but the problem will come back, and most of the time it will be worse than it originally was. And finally, number five, practice church discipline. In a, lot of these, in a lot of ways, these last two points tie in, to get, tie in together. The misconception of church discipline is that you have to tell one of the elders of a problem, and that starts the discipline process. The reality is there may be many examples of discipline that takes place without the elders even knowing about it, or at least that's how it should be. Matthew 18, verses 15 says, Now if your brother sins... Go and show him his fault between you and him alone. This passage doesn't say tell your brother or sister first to get advice. It doesn't say go to your elder first. It says you go to your brother or sister alone. This is the first step in church discipline. Now let me try and wrap this up. I've been all over the place, but I hope I've showed you through Scripture that the Scriptures are sufficient for all of life. Again, we here at Christ the King would affirm the inerrancy and authority of scriptures in matters of faith and practice. What I want us to be aware of is the possibility that we may have or we may become psychologized when it comes to matters of understanding and helping, or more specifically, when it comes to counseling. And let's face it, we counsel every day. We are constantly giving our opinions, giving advice, the question we, has to ask, we have to ask ourselves is, are we giving biblical counsel according to the all-sufficient Word of God? And finally, let's turn back to where we started. Psalm 19, verse 14. It says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your, in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Again, when we focus on the majesty of God, this will be our outcome. Words and meditations are acceptable him. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, we will walk worthy of our calling. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your all-sufficient word. Father, I pray that we would write your word on our hearts, that we would not sin against you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.